Okay, welcome back, everybody. I'm very happy to uh, welcome you all to part two, uh, conversation between Lee Brasington and Andres Gomez Emilson. Uh, very glad you're here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation to follow. I'm pretty much just going to be sitting uh, in the background, maybe jumping in to clarify my own confusion or try to clarify something for uh, all of you listening at home. But uh, yeah, why don't uh, Andres, you you take it away, introduce yourself, we can <laughs> pass it to Lee, and then we'll get going. Fantastic. Uh, first of all, is my audio okay? It's uh, can I, okay. Fantastic. Perfect. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm uh, currently the uh, president and director of research of the Qualia Research Institute. Uh, I think something that is I, I'm just very excited by. I, I wanted to to share is I uh, my uh, TEDx talk was finally released. So maybe after you hear the podcast, uh, take a look at it. It's about uh, yeah, essentially like preventing intense suffering with psychedelics and other substances. I'd be happy to go into that, but yeah, it's kind of a, a rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit of what's on my mind. And um, also, I'll be very curious to talk about uh, uh, essentially, yeah, the possible neuroscience of, uh, of the Janus with, uh, with Lei this time. So I'm very, very curious about it. Uh, but yeah, uh, Lei, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> Thank you. It's really nice to be back again. Yeah, so I'm Lee Brasington. Uh, I guess I'm known for teaching Janus. Um, I've been a Buddhist practitioner since 1985, been teaching since 97, wrote a book on the jhanas, wrote a book on dependent origination. Uh, yeah, I like exploring the mind, see what's going on in there. Um, I have a, a bachelor's degree in mathematics, and it turns out that mathematics is one way to explore the mind. Of course, it's got limitations like all other ways that you explore the mind. But I've, I've been interested in what's going on between my ears since I was in high school. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, yeah, so, so last time I think we, we touched upon the concept of uh, annealing and how that might uh, be related to the Janus. I guess to, to summarize it briefly, there's kind of, yeah, this, this idea that there are <laughs> energy levels to states of consciousness. And essentially, like many of the techniques that seem to have uh, kind of like long-term mental health benefits um, evolve some kind of like skillful energization of consciousness. So, and, and it's very, very, you know, across the board, you know, in, in the most loose sense, you could even say that something like high intensity interval training is already some kind of annealing. You're already kind of like pumping up your state and, uh, hopefully cooling in a in a good way um but then you know things like uh saunas <laughs> might also kind of like qualify a little bit for like uh light versions of neural annealings uh and then of course like yeah the the psychedelics you know in, in general in our model pretty much every psychedelic including you know something like weed um increases the energy parameter of your experience in, in different forms you know they have kind of different textures and characteristics and and therefore like different effects but by and large, as a class, they kind of like have like this effect of, okay, you will go through a period of maybe intensified like stress and internal discomfort, but by raising the energy and cooling down slowly, you will actually undo internal stresses that have been accumulated over time. So as a consequence, you know, afterwards, you will actually be um, in a state of, uh, you know, just a lot of internal stresses will have been released. Um, and uh, from this angle, yeah, potentially the Janus are maybe kind of like a quintessential version of like very, very, very clean, 
you know, drug-free annealing. And uh, as we talked about the, the other time, the interpretation here is that the first jhana, you know, being very, very energetic and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and full of energy, it is kind of um, instantiating a self-organizing principle that essentially breaks down pre-existing patterns and essentially leaves you in a kind of like clean slate where longer kind of like, <laughs> you might call them crystals of experience can kind of uh, um, grow afterwards. And then maybe the, the, the next janus could be like interpreted as the kind of like elongated crystals of experience that can only really exist in a, in a clean slate. So um, yeah, I guess there's a, a bit of a background, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, this is a very interesting way to look at it. I had not thought of the jhanas in that way, but I am aware that, so I've done meditation for science a number of times, so I've seen my brain on jhanas. And contrary to my expectations, it's not like I get into the jhana and the brain stays in a state. It enters a pattern, a repeating pattern, okay? And when I move to the next jhana, it's a different pattern. Uh, I don't have enough neuroscience background to know exactly what the patterns are all about or anything, although I have been told that the, the default mode network, the network that engages the selfing, basically, because it ties together parts of the brain associated with selfing, that's not active, which would make sense because if you're concentrated and focused on one thing, you don't have any bandwidth left, left over to do the selfing thing. So in that sense, it makes good sense to say, yeah, the jhanas take you to a different place. Now, um, the other thing that I know neurologically about what's going on um, in the second jhana, we know that the nucleus accumbens, the reward center in the center of the brain is very active. We assume that it's the same for the first jhana, but getting pictures of the first jhana, we can't do it with EEG because of the muscle tension, which messes up EEG. And I never wanted to run it hard in an fMRI because that could make my head move, which will then mess up all of the fMRI stuff. So we don't have good pictures of the first jhana, but given the similarities between the first and second jhana and the fact that the second jhana indicates a lot of activity in the nucleus accumbens, which is associated with dopamine and opioids, then yeah, we're, we're flooding the system with certain neurotransmitters. The opioids, well, they make you feel good. The dopamine breaks down into norepinephrine, which gives you the the energy, the physical movement, the heat that shows up with the PT. But I read an article since we last talked that indicated that dopamine also leaves you open to understanding better what you're experiencing. In other words, you're, you're open to insight. I mean, insight meditation is one of the, the big buzzwords in Western Buddhism. And so by entering the first jhana and flooding your system with dopamine, you're putting yourself into a state that's going to be more easily able to access insights of various states. So yeah, when you enter the jhanas, you are 
One, shutting down your normal ego functioning, leaving you more bandwidth to actually investigate the world, leaving you more able to investigate the world from a non-egocentric perspective, which is going to give you, I think, a much more accurate picture since the world doesn't actually evolve around me. Um, and it's also going to apparently leave you in a space where, yeah, you're more open to truly understanding what's going on. Mm. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when setting up the uh, this this uh, kind of sequel to the first, um, the the idea was to uh, bring in this angle that Lee has already been bringing up. So there are these extremely concentrated states that put your phenomenology and presumably your neurology into a more plastic, malleable, uh, highly energized state. Um, but then traditionally, what is that used for? Insight. So I just you know, wanted to emphasize that maybe as a, a direction. Yeah. What we find in the suttas, the Buddhist discourses, is the jhanas are basically a warm-up exercise for investigating reality or warm-up exercise for insight meditation. Uh, the Buddha did say, these are a pleasure I will allow myself. So it was a source of pleasure for the monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha. And it's a source of pleasure for people today. I mean, yeah, you sit down, you concentrate your mind, and you start feeling really, really good. That's kind of nice. You don't need to ingest anything. You don't need to have any external circumstances suddenly change to be like you want them. You just concentrate your mind and alter your state of consciousness. Yeah. I mean, obviously, from the point of view of, uh, of QRI, there's also the advantage of uh, you know having a very clean, high-valence state of consciousness to study, which in and of itself will probably gives us insight, not only personally, but also scientifically, right, for for the future of consciousness. <laughs> yeah, the fact that it's so clean is really helpful. I mean, have you ever done a mind altering substance and had a brilliant idea and written it down and looked at it the next day and go, what on earth was I talking about? Or <laughs> well, this is brilliant, except it's got all these flaws in it or whatever. So, yeah, I've been there, done that. And but with the jhanas, you don't have the with the substance, you've got the flights of fancy to find all these cool things. You have that not to the same extent with the jhanas, but you have accuracy with the jhanas. So if you do find some weird place to go, you have a much better chance of you know, finding something accurate as opposed to something that sounds really good when you and your buddy are sitting there stoned, but the next morning doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I'm gonna, I mean, I, of course, that, that absolutely, absolutely happened. I think that's like the experience of 99% of people. I, um, I feel slightly compelled to, to push back because at least in my personal experience, the, the insights are actually things that stick. Um, that said, I, I think there's like a lot of like discernment involved and, uh, background assumptions to, to make them work like, um, yeah, not being confused by, <laughs> you know, not, not taking them at face value, right? Like you've got to, you've got to figure out what they are, but I'll share an anecdote, which is, uh, on a, uh, I'm not going to mention which one, but on, on a legal, legal psychedelic, um, I actually found, uh, the solution to a mathematical problem that I had been uh, trying to solve for seven years. And, uh, the solution was correct. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that we don't get accurate stuff with mind altering substances. I'm saying you're more likely to get accurate stuff with 
something clean like vaginas. Yeah, <clears throat> when I was working as a computer programmer, yeah. there, was, there was a problem and my program was running slow. And one night when I was stoned, I realized, oh, you know, if we just, well, I won't go into the detail, but if we just do this, it'll go much faster. And since I had a computer in the other room, I went in and started programming. But I realized that I was stoned and I better not save this file because I didn't <laughs> think it was going to be accurate. But the idea was accurate. And the next morning when I was straight, I went in and I implemented the code. And yes, it sped it up by it probably operated about five times as fast as it had before. So the idea was found while I was in a mind-altering substance. And I've also had ideas that I found with a mind-altering substance that weren't really very accurate either. <laughs> Whereas with the jhanas, when I get an insight, it does tend to be something that's accurate because as you say, it's, it's much cleaner. Wow. There's probably a lot more, um, uh, maybe like self-honesty in that state or yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, <laughs> it's not self-honesty, it's lack of self-deception, mm. because the selfing part is what's gotten quiet. And so your agenda of selfing and your self-deception to make your selfing go better isn't happening because you're not bothering to, to do the selfing like you normally do. That's very interesting that the... The default, the, I guess, like the default conscious processing without the selfing is actually truth seeking. Uh, would be, would that be accurate? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. the whole idea is, if you understand what's going on, you can act in harmony with what's going on instead of at cross purposes. Unfortunately, mostly, what we see is what we want to have being going on. In other words, we're looking with ego colored glasses. And so entering the jhanas basically takes off the ego colored glasses. And now you can see more clearly. Interesting. Uh, out of curiosity, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the I mean, of course, you're familiar with the the, the six realms and uh, of, uh, you know, Buddhism and the, I guess, like the extra ones with the, the Buddha and the Bodhisattva. I'm curious how how do the realms relate to the to the Janus? Like, is the uh, is Titan realm compatible with with the Janus? <laughs> so, the orthodox understanding is that when you enter a jhana, you enter one of the heavenly realms. Okay, so you're actually going to someplace else, some other realm of existence. However. I'm not buying the realms. Um, the, the Buddha was really brilliant. He didn't try and convince people of metaphysics that were different from what they understood. He would, for the, the various realms, he, he was basically accepted the metaphysical worldview of India at that time. But he added the one thing. Yeah, but if you get to this heavenly realm, it's impermanent. You're going to die there. You, you haven't done anything worthwhile. So you're going to fall down lower. You're going to be back here. Now that you know what to do, do the practice now and don't worry about future realms. And so was, <clears throat> he wasn't trying to uproot 
people's wrong metaphysics or anything. He was just tweaking their metaphysics a little bit to get them to practice. Basically, it's important to remember the Buddha wasn't doing metaphysics. He was just trying to get people to practice. And so when you read any of the suttas, the closest we can get to the Buddha's words, you need to have the orientation of, okay, what's he trying to do here? Rather than what metaphysics does this imply? And basically what he's trying to do is to get you to see what's actually happening rather than postulating some point about you know, realms or anything. Furthermore, going to the 31 realms of existence, because when you blow the six realms up and mention all of the heavenly realms, there's 31 of them. The sutta I think is the most profound in all of the canon is uh, Samyutta 12.15, the Kachyanagota Sutta. And in that sutta, Kachyanagota asks the Buddha, right view, right view, in what way, venerable sir, is there right view? And the Buddha says, this world for the most part depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. But one with right view doesn't get entangled in these notions of existence and non-existence. One with right view does not take a stand about myself, my atta, my soul. So what the Buddha is saying is that ideas of existence and non-existence don't really explain what's going on. And he goes on in the suttas to say what really you should be looking in terms of is dependent origination. This, that conditionality dependent origination. This arises dependent on other things, that uh, that's what's going on. And so when you are using the categories existence and non-existence, you're missing the, the real picture. And so the fact that later Buddhism comes up with six realms, 31 realms of existence is flying in the face of what I think is the most profound in the whole canon. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I'll have to think about that. So the six apparent realms of neither existence nor non-existence or something like that. <laughs> six ways of looking at how people live. There are people who live in hell realms. Um, to take a current example, the Ukrainians that have been kept kidnapped by the Russians, maybe some of them are living in hell realms. There are people who live in animal realms. I remember being in Kathmandu and watching these two porters come by, each of them carrying a large wooden desk on their back. They were beasts of burden. They were living in the animal realm. And then there's the warring Asura's realm. Their, their headquarters, I think, is a five-sided building just south of Washington, D.C., right? So there are people who are always fighting. There's the animal realm, okay? There's the hungry ghost realm. Um, maybe you think of your least favorite politician and how he just needs more. He's, he's not got enough or your least favorite billionaire. I mean, this guy's a billionaire, but he doesn't have enough. He needs more, right? These are the hungry ghost realm. And then there are some people doing really well, you know, they're, 
their life is going well, things are nice, they're healthy, they've got enough. They're living in the heavenly realms. And then, yeah, a lot of humanity is just stuck in the human realm with some dukkha and some not dukkha and so forth. And the Buddha says that's the best place to practice. As my teacher Ayakema said, dukkha is our best teacher. It's what spurs us to actually take a look at what's going on because we're all going to have to face old age sickness and death. Well, you don't have to face old age. You can die young, but that's not a good solution. So, yeah, the six <laughs> realms do exist in terms of this is how people live. But the 31 realms where it gets into, I'm sorry, that's that's 2,500 years ago. <laughs> Metaphysics, I ain't buying it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, just just to uh, add something here, I guess, if you are in the Janus and uh, like a burst of Titan Asura energy comes up, it's just going to take you off the Janus, correct? Yeah. I remember the retreat where I, I had learned all eight Janus in a one week retreat, which was immediately followed the next day by a one month retreat. And so I'm practicing them a lot. And uh, it was over the 4th of July in Oakland, California. Oakland, California is known for, um, shall we say, celebrating the 4th of July rather loudly. And at some point, I'm sitting there in the 8th jhana, and somebody sets off a cherry bomb nearby. And yeah, <laughs> I was immediately back to normal consciousness. It was loud enough that it knocked me out. My consciousness was my concentration wasn't deep enough so that it didn't disturb me. Uh, it is possible, of course, to get into these states where, yeah, you wouldn't even hear it, but yeah, not likely to get there as a lay person, even on a one month retreat. You're going to have to spend a lot of time to get to that level. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, I wanted to get into. Um... Well, uh, very speculative, but it's kind of like, um, it, yeah, kind of like, a, I, yeah, I guess like a testing some ideas that have, we've been exploring at, a, at QRI in light of, yeah, essentially the, the Janus and, and, uh, and so on. So uh, maybe, maybe a little bit of, of context. So, you know, there's like this very, very big question of <laughs> what are rhythms in the brain? And uh, there's this, you know, fascinating book by uh, Buzaki, uh, you know, neuroscientist studying rhythms in the brain and essentially this all of this theory you're like well there's kind of this central pattern generators and circuits that essentially generate repeating patterns in, in the brain and you know all the you know the theta rhythms and alpha rhythms and beta rhythms can all be explained in terms of kind of these uh, these patterns um and uh in in a certain you know conceptual framework how uh some people try to make sense of this is kind of like with a cellular automata, right? Like you have a kind of like in Conway's game of life, right? Like essentially each dot <laughs> um, follows a rule set about how to update as a function of the state of its surrounding, its neighbors and its current state as well. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this goes pretty far. I think like you can definitely, you know, generate kind of a brain rhythms <laughs> um, with a cellular automata, but uh, I think it has its limitations. And essentially, its limitations may actually be, in my view, 
in some sense, actually missing the most important hint about what consciousness is and how, how it's related to the brain. And that is what's called um, ephatic coupling in the brain. Uh, uh, a particular instance, which is for me the most interesting one, is uh, what's called uh, local field potentials. So essentially, when you have a, a, a population of neurons firing, um, there's something that happens, you know, electrically that essentially um, the cells, the cell um, membranes work kind of like as a low pass filter. <laughs> so mm -hmm. interestingly enough, you know, you have kind of this aggregated average oscillation in the electric field, but only of the low frequencies. So essentially all of the, you know, very high frequency spiking um, doesn't show up. Essentially it's kind of filtered out. But you do have the low frequency ones, which will generally range between one and a hundred hertz. Essentially, kind of yeah, the 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 frequencies that matter for EEG and uh, and other other ways of measuring oscillations in the brain. So, um, local field potentials are not just epiphenomenal. In, in other words, they're not just kind of like a signature of neural activity of you know the cellular automata, but they also feedback into neural activity. And the, the way they do this is uh, uh, twofold. Um, the first one is they slightly change the firing threshold. In other words, mm -hmm. if you have a very powerful local field potential, all of a sudden a neuron that maybe was just barely in the threshold of firing through synaptic activity would actually be pushed towards being able to fire. So that's one. Now, my understanding of the literature of the neuroscientific literature is that um, like the fact that this happens is uncontroversial, but um, it's generally thought of as a minor, minor effect. I mean, relative to synaptic effects, um, we're talking about like something between one and 20% uh, of the effect size. So maybe a little bit modulates a little bit, but not very much. But the other effect that seems to be much more significant is that local field potentials strongly alter the probability of neurons firing in phase. Um, in other words, they modulate the timing of, of firing even more so than the probability of firing. Mm -hmm. And uh, to me, this okay opens up like two very, very interesting lines of uh, inquiry. And first, because there are, you know, this class of theories of consciousness, which are called the electromagnetic theories of consciousness. And uh, you know, some proponents of it are, for example, uh, Joe McFadden, um, and another one, it's uh, Susan Pocket. They claim that, you know, neural activity that is conscious is exactly the neural activity that generates local field potentials. And there's mm -hmm. some very interesting evidence of this because there's like a lot of neural activity that is not associated with consciousness. But then there's some, for example, layer four of the visual cortex, among other regions, have like a lot, you know, strong local field potentials, and they seem to be associated with actual events of experience, uh, kind of actually experiencing a, a percept. So that that opens up a you know whole line of inquiry. But then, perhaps even more relevant for this talk is, um, I wonder if local field potentials might explain the Janus. Yes. Why? <laughs> right, because. If local field potentials, you know, there's a feedback loop, right? Local field potentials increase the probability of coherent firing and coherent firing generates local field potentials. So it seems like a possible attractor would be strong local field potentials together with strong 
coherence in neural firing? Maybe the Janus or that attractor. I don't know. Reactions? Thoughts? Yeah, yeah no, this makes total sense. So in chaos theory, one of the things they talk about are strange attractors. And basically, if you have a function that looks like the strange attractor, it's probably going to become that strange attractor if it gets close enough. And when I saw the patterns that represented each of the jhanas with an EEG run, my thought was, oh, these are patterns. And then thinking about it, I bet they're strange attractors. In other words, if you get your mind close to one of these states, it falls into the state because it attracts you. Uh, and then it becomes stable. It's basically like a local local minimum, right? You put a ball here, it'll roll down to here, and it'll stay in the in the in the valley there. And I'm guessing that the jhanas are strange attractors. That's how I can teach them. You know, I get I just tell people enough so that if they're concentrated sufficiently, they can get close to the strange attractor and fall into the jhana. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, I had no mechanism for why or how it would work. But what you just outlined makes total sense. The stranger tractor thing is my background in mathematics coupled with my subjective experience, both with teaching and my own personal experience. But now you've outlined a mechanism that actually fits what what my experience and my theory is. So yeah, I think we're definitely on exactly the <laughs> page here. This is great. Awesome. Then uh, let me give you a, a little more. I mean, this is it's it's great to hear. Um, so, what is consciousness doing in the brain? So this is this is kind of a strange, you know, strange thing, but speculative. But uh, so, if if it is true that the local field potentials are the signature of conscious experience, then this actually gives us a sense of like, what is what consciousness, what is it what that consciousness does in the brain? And um, it's not quite like reviving like dualism, because, you know, in some sense, okay, like if you're the local field potentials, you're still, in some sense, you know, like physical, you're, you're oscillations in the electromagnetic field. But um, it does have kind of like this somewhat of a dualistic feel to it, because all of a sudden, you're not like matter. You're not made of matter. You're made of a field. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, you, if you are the, the local field potentials kind of patchwork, in some sense, you, you have a brain. It's not that you are the brain. It's you have a brain. You, you can bias neural activity, even, but you cannot control neural activity on a single neuron level, right? You can't tell this neuron to fire, but you can bias populations of neurons to fire. And, uh, and this is also, I think like it fits the phenomenology maybe because if what local field potentials do is increase the probability of um, coherent firing, mm -hmm. I think this kind of explains the effect that awareness and attention has on our experience. Like essentially, if you place your attention in two regions of your body, let's say, and just try to keep it there, at least in my experience, over time, the vibrations in those two parts of experience starts to synchronize. <laughs> so in some sense, kind of the, the effect that consciousness has on 
the neural networks would be helping them synchronize. And then mm -hmm. in that sense, maybe the, yeah, also the Janus are kind of the um, a gradient descent towards global coherence or global synchrony. You're slowly training the networks so that <laughs> you can actually all of it enter, all of it enter into coherence. Yeah, I don't know how much global there is, but there's definitely going to be coherence mm -hmm. there just to make it stable. Um, it, we, we just don't know enough at this point about what's going on, but what you're saying does make <laughs> very good sense. Um, in, in terms of synchronous firing, one of the more amazing experiences I had, I, I took a riverboat, I, I took a boat south from Singapore to Indonesia, and then I took a riverboat from the island south of, of Singapore into Sumatra. And as we start up the river, it's getting dark and I can't, I'm not going to be able to see. I mean, we cross the Straits of Malacca. There's a lot of water. There's a lot of ships, but you know, not that exciting. But now we're going up a jungle river and it's getting dark, but I'm not going to be able to see anything except that all along both banks of the river, there were trees covered with fireflies that were flashing in synchrony every tree had its own pattern i don't remember whether the trees next to each other were all the same but every tree all the fireflies were flashing in in synchronicity so there seems to be a tendency for things that are random to become synchronized i mean you can find lots of youtube videos on people setting up things and they be, become synchronized so this synchronizing that's happening it could well be playing a, a large part of consciousness that somehow uh, the synchronizing happens and that that is what we experience as consciousness what changing the subject slightly one of the things i've been doing lately is asking people what is consciousness and mostly the answer i get is uh uh, well, what do you think it is? <laughs> I mean, try asking people, what is consciousness? And yes. everybody, everybody, yeah, they know whether they're conscious or not. Well, no, actually, they know that they weren't conscious, but they don't know they aren't conscious. <laughs> so to me, it seems to be a feedback loop that somehow the feedback of the sensory input is producing some mental processing uh and as you said it's a it's a small portion of mental activity but it's it's a feedback loop coming in through the senses that makes us aware makes us conscious the buddha pointed out that consciousness as he says is reckoned by the conditions on which it depends if it arises dependent on eye and sight, it's eye consciousness, ear and sound, ear consciousness, just like a fire is reckoned based on the conditions on which it depends. If it's burning in the forest, it's a forest fire. If it's burning on a house, it's a house fire. If it's burning on rubbish, it's a rubbish fire. So consciousness is a dependently originated process, right? And we reckon it in Buddhism as the six consciousnesses, but it doesn't mean there are six different things. There are six different ways of talking about this 
phenomena, this process, because it's, it's all processes. Um, it's not a thing, it's a process. <laughs> and in fact, I would say there are no such things as things. It's all processes. My, my line is that there aren't any nouns. It's just that some verbs move kind of slow. And we, <laughs> we want to give them a, a noun as a name, but it's all processes. And consciousness is obviously a process dependent upon sensory input. And it seems to involve some sort of feedback loops in there and some sort of stabilization in that I can be conscious of your face while I'm looking with my eyes at the screen. I can be conscious of your voice while I'm listening with my ear, etc. I uh, I hope I'm I'm not uh, disrespectful if I uh, push back against that <laughs> that view. <laughs> um, well, I guess, for, first of all, I'll mention, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's a, a really excellent question to ask people, like, what is consciousness? Because just people just talk past each other all the time on, on that topic. And uh, actually, that used to be my one of my favorite activities uh, as, a, as an undergraduate. I would just approach random people and say, what do you think about consciousness? And uh, <laughs> all sorts of mixed reactions. But actually, that's how I met a few, a few good friends. So... <laughs> um, uh, I think uh, consciousness, there are kind of like um, 10 different definitions of it. And, you know, I've got to say that like all of them are interesting. Like I'm, I'm not somebody who says like, well, not that one. You know, I don't care about that one. They're all interesting. That said, there is one sense which uh, I find the most uh, fundamental and fascinating, which is uh, consciousness in the sense of qualia, which, yes, I think uh, in the Buddhist sense, yeah, the eye consciousness would be visual qualia in, in our uh, in our vocabulary um and there is they're not like um fundamentally different things because you can bind them together you know there's like a I remember there's like a recent yeah philosophy of mind uh, paper arguing well um uh consciousness as a, as a concept really does make sense because there's all of these different disparate uh, processes um I think that there is something more fundamental which is the the fact that visual qualia and audio qualia can belong to a, the same experience tells mm -hmm. us that they have something in common even though they're co completely different flavors but like the find the fact they can bind suggests there is like yeah this broader concept now to your point of like um consciousness being a process uh susan pocket uh who i, I just mentioned about electromagnetic theories of consciousness she she actually has this paper which says consciousness is a thing not a process uh so <laughs> really kind of a yeah maybe a different way of describing the same thing but um one reason you know she argues why um kind of a recurrence of feedback is not enough for, for consciousness is because you do have a lot of uh uh parts of the brain that have a uh, feedback and recurrence but they don't generate consciousness mm -hmm. and uh according to her and her analysis the one thing that makes, for example, layer four neurons in the visual cortex actually generate consciousness is that not only do they give a feedback, they also instantiate local field potentials. So in this view, essentially, a moment of experience would be this patchwork of local field potentials. In a certain sense, you could you know, draw a boundary around it and say, OK, is, that, is this thing? <laughs> and it has energy and, and uh, 
uh, momentum and uh, <laughs> and um, you know magnet magnetic tension and you know all of these physical properties and in some sense is, is a thing you know of course like our fields a thing maybe it stretches the definitions a little bit but yeah so i'm going to say there are no things sure, sure, sure. <laughs> when you look carefully it's all verbs it's all processes however that's a little bit difficult to uh, communicate to other people so it's useful to come up with nouns and to draw boundaries i mean there's a picture behind me yeah okay so you look at it it's the patala palace it's a, a photograph i took it's the best photograph i ever took right and it's a thing but you know actually it's the result of some processes. There was the camera and the light and the film and the development and you shipping the negative off to my buddy who blew it up and mounted it and everything else like that. But it also was dependent on them building the Patala Palace and getting all of the, the rocks and bricks and mortar and everything else to put it together. But they wouldn't have built it if there wasn't this culture. I mean, when you really, Look at this picture, it's dependent on so many things. When we take a snapshot in time and say, now, there's a picture on the wall back here, then we've thingified it. But if we really understand what's going on, it's huge. It, it, it's, it's all about, yeah, Buddhism spreading out of India into Tibet and <laughs> what the culture invented. And of course, the Buddha being born in India and the, the culture he grew up in. And I mean, we can take it all the way back to the Big Bang. And none of this is sufficient to explain it all. Right. But it's a little bit difficult to to say, talk about the picture on the wall in terms of the Big Bang and everything that happened all along the way until the picture on the wall appeared. But it's useful to just divide it out and say there's a picture on the wall. And it's a picture of the Patala Palace and talk about it as though it's things. But what the Buddha is saying is in the right view. Uh, don't think that you're drawing a boundary actually captures everything that's going on. There's a whole lot from the past that came together to make it what it is now where you're drawing the boundary. Plus, it's going to continue to evolve into the future. And so getting this broad timescale look at something rather than just what you've got right now is really important. So if she wants to call consciousness a thing, yeah, it's okay, but <laughs> it doesn't capture all that's going on because there's a lot of activity necessary to generate consciousness. There has, there has to be something to be conscious of. You can't have, you can't have objectless consciousness, right? You can be conscious of no thing, nothing, right? But the nothing is what you're conscious of. So, but in order to have something that you're conscious of, there has to be sensory input. Well, sensory input is not a static thing. It's neurons firing. And so, yeah, it's all going to be verbs when you really get down to it at a basic <laughs> level. But it might be too difficult to talk about it as verbs if you're really exploring what's going on. And so it's easier to uh, come up with things and talk about the interaction between things. The important 
thing is to remember that this is just a shorthand. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I wonder if now might be an interesting time to uh, insert into the dialogue, uh, Andres, your thoughts on topological segmentation uh, and the dissolution of, of boundaries in uh, in sensory conscious experience. Uh, because here Lee is talking about uh, there are no things. And in fact, there are experiences, you know, uh, jhana in insight in which the distinction between different things, self, other, subject, object, that can blur, dissolve, collapse, um, et cetera. And Andres, I think you have some uh, really rather fascinating uh, ideas uh, about on the on the neurological level, um, or maybe that's not the right scale of explanation. Anyway, I'm going to let you take it away what, and, and uh, maybe have Lee respond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So how do I explain this? Um... In, in my interpretation, um, the, the notion of there being no things is a very, very helpful uh, attitude towards approaching your experience because it prevents you from reifying things, right? And, uh, and reifying things causes suffering. And, uh, you know, in, in our interpretation, it's kind of like causes folds and pinch points, shear patterns, um, symmetry breaking effects on experience. And, uh, yeah, I guess like you, you may really love your, really love your car, but like if you really thingify it, uh, at some point it's gonna come up and actually is disturbing the flow of of, uh, of attention, and it's just actually causing you suffering in in a subtle way. So, I think the attitude of there being no things is very very helpful. Um, but to to explain why, I think um, I introduced this concept of the difference between a recipe and a review of a state mm -hmm. so the re the recipe of for example you know being in meditation and saying there's no things there's no things there's no things gives you access to to a certain state of consciousness which is perhaps much more fluid and dynamic and uh, less less coagulated <laughs> more more like better in many ways um uh but then you know conceptually to be conceptually clear we can distinguish between the recipe kind of the conceptual operation that we applied versus like where it took us and mm -hmm. um and in, in a sense like the fact that using a particular mindset a particular recipe generates very beneficial states of consciousness is not itself evidence for the metaphysical truth of of those right i, I guess it's quite similar to people having metaphysical beliefs, you know, uh, worshiping a deity or something like that, having very extraordinary states of consciousness disclosed after doing that doesn't necessarily mean that deity, you know, was their mind independent or something right. like that. I would say perhaps it's kind of the same with the nothingness. And then, um, and then at the metaphysical level, uh, maybe kind of <laughs> controversial, but it's, you know, so one of the QRI perspectives uh, held lightly, but I think it's an interesting addition to the conversation is that when you look at the universe as uh, from the, the block time uh, perspective, you know, where, um, where time is just another dimension, right? Um, it's also called uh, eternalism in philosophy of time. Um, there are, there is a way of thinking about it where legitimately there are, there are things in it. Now, in, in, in our view, all of it is actually a, a gigantic field of consciousness. Um, and most things that, that we perceive as things, I don't know, give you an example, something like this, 
objectively, you know, from the point of view of the fields that are generating it, the processes that are generating it, there's no like hard boundary around it, right? Like it actually, there's no physical fundamental boundary that separates this from the space around it. Um, but that is not the case of everything. Um, if you look at essentially the electromagnetic field, um, you may think like, well, it's all waves and eddies. So there's no real boundaries, but, but actually there are boundaries and, and they're called uh, topological boundaries. So essentially uh, an eddy, if it's generated in the right way, can actually close. And essentially you get these uh, closed uh, field lines in, in the field. And, uh, and that generates a pocket that, you know, if you zoom out from the four dimensional time block perspective, it's a, it actually has uh, spatial temporal uh, boundaries. And it, it's kind of like, it's, it's just there and uh, it, it is segmented and separated from everything else. Um, and in that sense, you know, if we are kind of the local field potentials and they're closing, they're actually generating closed loops, there would be a, a very objective way in which physically this is actually a thing and it's like separated from the rest of the fields. So <laughs> that, yeah. that would be the steel man. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not saying there are no boundaries. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I'm saying there are no things in the sense that we use the word thing as uh, something static. Um, but yeah. yeah, there's definitely boundaries. I mean, one of the things I used to do is go whitewater rafting. And we talked a lot about grabbing an eddy. You know, Joe fell out of the raft back there, grab an eddy. So when he comes floating by, we can pick him up and haul him into our raft, right? But grab an eddy, we're, we're moving the raft into a place where the water is going upstream and we're in this boundary area so that we can stay there. So when Joe comes floating down, we can grab him and haul him into our raft. So, but it's not a thing, it's a process. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, the other thing I want to say is, so the book I wrote on dependent origination, the title of the last chapter is don't be confused by your conceptualizing. In other words, it's not don't conceptualize. It's just don't be fooled by your conceptualizing. Right? We we need our, our pea brains can't take in the whole universe, right? So we need to get smaller and smaller bits that we can deal with. Otherwise, yeah, we starve to death. So you got to find this is edible. This is a safe place to sleep. You know, these concepts are going to be absolutely necessary for our survival. But the problem often that I see is that people get a concept and they get attached to the concept as opposed to looking at what's actually happening. All right. And so when I say there are no things, what I'm really saying is whatever you think is a thing is probably more going on than your concept truly captures. So that's one point I wanted to make based on what you said. And the other one, I don't believe in time. Well, okay, yeah. So time really exists. We agreed to meet at noon Pacific time. So yeah, we, we got here on time and so forth. But time is an emergent property of change and all there really is is change. And we find that it's useful 
to measure the rate of change of things. In particular, the rate at which the sun comes up. We call that a day. And then we subdivide it into hours and minutes and so forth. And so our whole thing about time is our wanting to measure these periodic changes. And so we invent time. But what's actually going on is just change. And we're imposing time on top of that. It's a useful imposition. It allows us to do lots of things like invent computers so we can do Zoom and have this, this interview. But um, yeah, it's, it's a way of organizing our working with change. But it's an emergent property of change. Change is what's the basic thing down there. And then we conceptualize periodic changes and make that into time. Yeah, interesting. So you are, you are a change realist. They're like, um, so, so you don't agree with the uh, block time universe that everything's just there. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's interesting because one of the largest of the early Buddhist schools actually in their Abhidhamma, they did believe that the past and the future actually exist. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you're going to be a science fiction writer and do time travel, you have to believe that the past and the future actually exist. So if you're going to be a science fiction writer, Buddhist, you'll have to be a Savastavadin rather than a Theravadin. Because the Theravadin <laughs> didn't believe the past and the present, uh, past and the future exist. That is very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very open to it. Uh, the, the thing we'll have to figure out is, uh, because there are some interesting arguments based on like um, special relativity uh, for like why the time and the past and the future exist. I don't know if you've encountered them. Mm -hmm. I, 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 no, I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I didn't buy them. Okay, I like it. I like it. This is great. <laughs> yeah, so one of... So now that I'm retired, uh, at least I have some free time, and I spend a lot of my time watching documentaries on YouTube, and one of my favorite topics is, is science, you know, particularly physics. I mean, I was in physics for the first two years before switching to math. And so, yeah, and, you know, people come up with their proofs, proofs of the existence of time, proofs of the existence of the past and future, but I just, I don't buy it. I, I see something that they're missing every time when they're talking about it. Now, am I correct or not? Well, that's for other people to decide. This is where I've landed. I think I'm correct, but uh, so does Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just because you think you're correct doesn't make you correct. <laughs> One uh, expression that uh, David Pierce sometimes says, uh, it's a um, philosopher we, we, uh, we like a lot. It's uh, <laughs> That like, uh, yeah, I mean, if you take the world, sim like everybody's in their own world simulation, like it is absolutely the case that uh, in, you know, the world simulation of like millions of people, you know, somebody like Donald Trump is actually a fantastic statesman. And like, it, it really is true within their world simulation. And uh, yeah, I suppose it's quite similar with uh, con being convinced of a philosophical view. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Donald Trump is, for me, the proof that there is actually an external world out there. It's not all in my mind because I'm not sick enough to make up the stuff that he did. Yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs>
Um, so speaking of, of, of timelessness, um, there, there are traditions within Buddhism, uh, Lee, uh, you and I are, are both familiar with, uh, that speak of, uh, kind of timeless, uh, experiences of timelessness or, uh, which, which also uh, tend to in involve a lack of subject, uh, object distinction. I'm thinking here of, of Dzogchen, um, and, one of the topics I, I wanted to hear you both riff on uh, and exchange is uh, non-dual states. Um, and I know, Lee, in your book, uh, you spend some time on the Bahia Sutta. Um, and so maybe maybe that's enough to go on, just dropping in some, some uh, sparks here. Right. So again, back to not things. So generally, we interact with the world in terms of the subject and the object. I'm the person here and right there, there's a tanka, that's a thing. And over here, there's a window that has a blackout curtain on it. And there's a computer in front of me. And so I is the subject and there are all these objects out there. Can you experience the world without doing the subject object duality? And this is what the Tibetan Dzogchen practice and all the rest of the non-dual practices are pointing at, is there a way for you to, to get to that space? And in the Bahia Sutta, the Buddha gives Bahia the practice of, in seeing, let there be only seeing, in hearing, only hearing, in sensing, only sensing, in cognizing, only cognizing. When you can do that, there's no you in that, there's no you in this, there's no you in between, just this is the end of dukkha. So a step in the direction of non-duality is to stop seeing objects and see seeing, right? So you don't fixate on the object. You just see there is an object, your visual field, rather than the object in your visual field. All right, can you just see seeing? That's a step in the right direction. Now, can you step back even further and just see without reference to an object? They're still seeing. And yes, you're conscious of seeing. So we could say there's an object, but there's nobody seeing. There's just seeing happening. Uh, one of the things that helps people get to this, if you work with mindfulness of breathing long enough, eventually, you stop breathing and the breathing is happening on its own. Well, it turns out you can do that with any sense. It particularly happens with your hearing, you know, that noisy truck going up the street. You, you didn't want that to happen, but the hearing happened on its own. And if you can get to the point where for all of your senses, you're not objectifying, conceptualizing what it is, then there's also not the who it is that's experiencing it, and you arrive at this state of non-duality. When you're there at its deepest experience, you realize that, oh, this is the way the world is all the time, that there, there's this seamless whole that has these apparent boundaries and we chop it up into me and all the objects out there. But this isn't the most accurate depiction of what's going on. In the non-dual world, you, 
you see what we normally would consider a boundary and realize, oh, this is just part of what's going on, but it's a seamless whole and you realize the entire universe is like that. I mean, I said that there aren't any nouns, it's just that some verbs move kind of slow. Well, there's only really one verb unfolding. We could say the universe is unfolding, but the universe it, that's superfluous. We just, there's just unfolding, but it's too big for our little pea brains to take in. So we got to chop it up into bits and pieces in order to deal with it, find something to eat and a place to sleep. I think I'll, um, I'll mention, yeah, the, the non-duality, um, for me, the, the, kind of to solve the mystery of what's what's going on and it, obviously yeah i mean i think there's like very big benefits both uh ethically and from the point of view of valence to seeing the world in a non-dual way um i think uh i mean the the biggest hints is uh to contrast uh it sounds very out there but it's like to contrast the effects of a uh, dmt and 5-meo dmt so dmt they call it the spirit molecule creates all of these like ecosystem of strange entities and vibration patterns. And it's very, very complex, a very strange and colorful experience. 5-MeO DMT, they call it the, the God molecule. And it feels like everything becomes one. You realize you're the, <laughs> the one subject of existence, perfect, you know, pure, clean, white light type of experiences. And then in between, you have all of the classic psychedelics like LSD and mescaline and so on, which can go either way. And actually depends on, on what happens. So in, in my interpretation, uh, the key difference between the two, DMT and 5-MeO, is that DMT, its attractor state is competing clusters of coherence. So essentially just <laughs> a, a patch of coherence there, a patch of coherence there. <laughs> right. And, uh, and there's no, or it's very difficult to synchronize all of them. So because they're all different vibrations and different different patterns they have kind of these internal boundaries that separates them mm -hmm. and and so they feel like they're different entities from yourself and from each other in 5-meo dmt i think the attractor state is global coherence mm -hmm. where because it's all coherent there's no way to generate boundaries and so your representation of the universe and yourself click into one and you Kind of delve into it, um, and uh, and I guess to kind of like complement this, the psychedelics in between, there are, for example, you can have like an LSD state of non-duality or a mescaline state of non-duality, but it always, 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 always goes through an annealing process where essentially it starts out with these crazy vibrations, but maybe you do some breath work or you meditate and they slowly start to synchronize. Mm -hmm. until they all synchronize and then you snap into kind of a, a god experience or a unity experience so for me this you know the the spectrum of like competing coherent clusters of coherence versus global coherence and the fact that that tracks non-duality to me is like a very very strong hint that uh yes non-duality involves the synchronization of internal representations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it involves <laughs> It involves stopping making hard boundaries. Hmm. <laughs> the, the, the visual field doesn't change, but you just don't, 
you don't conceptualize at what could be a boundary. In other words, it looks just like it did when it was dualistic, but it's your processing of it that's different. And your processing <laughs> of it is, yeah, is more of a coherent whole rather than an individual bunches of pieces. Yeah, I'd like I'd like to highlight the the fact, uh, you know, the the non duality that Lee uh, is mentioning here. You know, it's it's a functional one. You can you can live from that. It's not you know, body, self, mind, space, time, world dissolved into utter formlessness, and you that that's non dual. It's I mean that that is also possible, but uh, you know, this is you can you can walk around, you can talk, you can you can live from that, and that's. Yeah, that's, that's that's something that is usually not on offer with the with the psychedelics, which is why it's I think so interesting and, and valuable. Yeah, the the living in the non-dual space. A lot of people talk about that, <clears throat> and so I would say, all right, if you're living in the non-dual space, you're living in a non-conceptual space. I can't talk from a non-conceptual space, because in order to talk, I've got to have a concept, right? And I vibrate part of my throat and throw the concept at my listener's ear and hope they take the concepts that I'm throwing and reassemble them into a thought that's similar to what I do. So although I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, living in a non-dual world, <clears throat> I know, a, I know a state of mind that is non-conceptual and I can be in that state. I can actually walk in that state, right? As long as I have to look really carefully where I'm going, like, yeah, I'm walking down a, a road or a path that's pretty smooth or something. And I don't have to worry about navigating my way back. I can just be walking. So there's some things I can do where concepts aren't necessary. But in order to talk to someone or wash the dishes, I need to know the difference between the sponge and the dish and where the rack is and how to turn the water on. And these concepts are necessarily there for me. And so because I know this state that is non-conceptual and non-dual, the state that I think people are talking about is one where their conceptualizing is quieted down. I can't, I, so, fixing my oatmeal this morning, I put some strawberries on it. So I can stand there with a knife in my hand and a strawberry in my hand, and I can cut the little bit out and I can chop up the strawberry, not cut myself. Now I got 16 pieces of this little strawberry, but I didn't do it non-conceptually, but I didn't say any words to myself. I didn't think, oh yeah, make the little circle here and get the stem part out. Now, hold it like this and slice it. I, that's not going on. I'm just doing it without saying any words, but I'm still conceptualizing the difference between the strawberry and my fingers, and I better do that or I'll cut my fingers. So, <clears throat> yes, I know people say that they can operate in a non-dual world. I haven't gotten there. When I'm in what I know is the deepest non-dual state, I can walk. I can't talk. I can hear but i can't interpret what i hear right uh i can see but i can't interpret what i'm seeing uh it, it's it's a non-conceptual state now 
maybe I haven't gotten to the, the deep state that these people are talking about, and I'm just in this baby state right here, but that's my experience. So. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm wondering if, if maybe I can just, uh, but this is, this is my own understanding and you can, you can critique it either of you as you like, you know, there, I want to introduce the concept of, of fabrication that I know, you know, you're familiar with Andres. It's something that uh, late Dharma teacher, Robert Bea uses. So, you know, with a lot of training, you can, uh, learn to defabricate your experience to a certain degree. Um, you know, the, the usual boundary between self, uh, and, and other can blur and dissolve and in really deep states of samadhi or, you know, absorption, like, like jhanas, uh, you know, really things get very, very defabricated, very fine, um, formless. Um, and some of that can be brought back into the functional space of, objects that, you know, you pick up and interact with, uh, but it's always a, it, it, it admits of degrees. So I think this distinction often isn't made. I, I think this is what you're getting at Lee that, you know, this admits of degrees of non-duality, if you like, um, that if, if you, if you're really, you know, just full on, uh, non-dual absorbed state, uh, where, you know, you're not even experiencing the distinction of the fingers on your hand and the wall, you know, <laughs> Uh, yeah, and all mental processing is just shut off, and there's there's really just seeing, without even a thing being seen. That's not such a functional state, is that? Am I am I on track here? Right, it's not such a functional state, but it's what's really there. In other words, one one of the practices I used to do when I was at the forest refuge, uh, on long retreats, so there's a nice place to go for a walk. And sometimes I would walk and I would try and experience the world as if I wasn't there. Okay, so I know it sounds a little weird, but just trying to remove all concepts of any hint of me, just, just the world out there without me being in it, without me adding anything like that. And yeah, it was interesting to to do that. So I could walk. I could, you know, I, I mean, it would fade in and out. I couldn't stay in it solidly for 10 minutes while I was walking. But it was really interesting experiencing the world without any reference to me. Um, and that's that's really good. But OK, so there's a swimming pool. And there's a patio by the swimming pool where well, you can stand by the door of the house. You know, you're, you're 10 yards, 10 meters from the swimming pool. You're not wet, right? Or you can come closer. You can get close enough. You can put your hand in and feel the temperature of the water, right? You can get right up next to it. But there's a real difference when you actually jump in the water. It's really different when I can step deeply into the non-conceptual space, the, what I'm calling the, the true non-dual space, I see that the whole universe is exactly like what I'm experiencing, although I'm, I have no reference to me experiencing it. It's just the seamless universe. That's why I say there's only one verb unfolding. Mm -hmm. uh, it's jumping into the swimming pool. 
And yes, I can be right there on the edge. I can climb back out and be on the edge. Yeah, there's still water on me. And But it's not the same as when I was in the water. And yeah, when I'm cutting up the strawberry to put on my oatmeal, I'm not thinking I'm cutting up the strawberry. I'm, it's just being done. But I wouldn't call it a non-dual state myself because I know this other state that is definitely non-dual. And so it's it's a <laughs> it's a less dual state, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one concept that comes to mind might be like MVD or MVF, which is like minimum viable duality or minimum viable mm -hmm. fabrication for a given uh, task. And like presumably some tasks like require a lot of <laughs> fabrication and others others like you can get by with very very little um and i i i admire the uh yeah the the honesty you're, you're sharing because it's uh it's it's kind of distracting when when people yeah do say something like yeah i'm, I'm totally in a non-dual state fully but they're talking to you and uh like well i know what like a fully non-dual state is and like i i doubt it <laughs> like um yeah i, I can't imagine yeah, uh, doing anything functional on high dose 5-MeO DMT, where like exactly as you say, like it all feels like just this flow with no boundaries. It's completely non-functional. <laughs> right. The, the, the only advantage of it is to realize that's how the universe actually is, that mm. we spend so much time me experiencing the universe as opposed to the universe being experienced. I mean, when I was in eighth grade, my English teacher said, yeah, don't write in the passive voice, write in the active voice. Now that I'm teaching Buddhism, I say, don't think in the active voice, think in the passive voice. Okay. This is being experienced rather than I'm experiencing this. And I think that gives you a more accurate picture of what's going on. This, this habit we have of me being the center of the universe is a useful one because it keeps the organism alive. We protect the me. We, I mean, it's a really good thing for evolution to evolve beings that want to keep the being around long enough to reproduce, right? So it's a, it's a really good thing to have, but it also blinds us to what's going on at a deeper level. And this, I think, is what's going on in the Bahia Sutta, the Buddha is pointing Bahia in a direction where he can actually experience at that deep level. Now, the reason for doing this is, okay, so the Buddha says, all I teach is dukkha and the end of dukkha. He says, dukkha arises dependent on craving and clinging. Right? So if you actually can understand the universe, in terms of there's not a whole bunch of stuff to go craving and clinging after then you stop your craving and clinging and you get out of dukkha so he's not doing the metaphysics of saying this is the way the universe is he's saying if you can view the universe from this non-dual perspective there's nothing to crave or cling and therefore there's no setup for dukkha because dukkha has as a necessary condition craving and clinging if you turn off the necessary condition the antecedent condition doesn't happen the follow-on condition, the post-seeding condition, not anti-seeding. Wow. <laughs> um, 
all of this makes me think like, I mean, in some sense, if you are constantly manufacturing boundaries, hard, hard boundaries, mm -hmm. it's probably kind of the antithesis of meditation. So I guess, uh, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, is there any, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wouldn't say it's the antithesis. I would say it's very useful to understand how and why and what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's very useful to manufacture some boundaries so you get a sense of how the world actually works, right? So that you can see that your dukkha arises dependent on your craving, and that if you stop craving, then that dukkha would happen. I mean, so some of these boundaries are going to be very useful. But <clears throat> there's a fair amount you need to learn. So there's the Eightfold Path, the eight uh, basic practices you need to undertake on the Buddhist path. The second one is right intention. And the Buddha asks, and what, O monks, is right intention? Intentions of renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. So letting go, love, and compassion. All right, so the letting go part, yeah, that's going to be helped by disassembling the boundaries by uh, penetrating the, the uh, artificial nature of the boundaries and so forth. That's that's going to be really good for your renunciation, your letting go. But the love and compassion, you're actually going to want boundaries there in order to do this, uh, to, to truly see this person is suffering and there's something I can do to help them. Yeah, that's going to be operating in the dualistic world. And so it's not that we're trying to get rid of the dualistic world. We're trying to understand it and when it's useful and when it's not useful. And I think that's the tricky bit. It's often when somebody begins to get a hint of the so-called absolute or the ultimate reality, they want to dismiss the conventional reality. But it, they're just two sides of the same coin. If I had a bowl here and I ask you, is it concave or convex? I mean, those are opposites. How can it be both? Well, it depends on your perspective. If you're going to put soup in the bowl, better use the concave. If you're going to use it to elevate a candle, better use the convex, right? It's the same with non-duality and duality. It depends on your perspective and it's potent practice to pick the proper perspective, right? It's, <laughs> it's really useful. You don't want to put soup in the bowl if it's like this. <laughs> right? So the ability to switch between the perspectives as needed, I think, is one of the hallmarks of someone who's fully awakened. There's a sutta at the end of it after a discussion about the self. The Buddha says, a tathagata, a fully awakened one, can use these words, I, me, mine, and not be fooled by them. Hmm. In other words, when it's appropriate, you know, he took his robe and bowl and he went into town and he got alms food and he ate his food, not his fingers. So the boundaries were there. But he also was able to step when necessary into the non-dual perspective. So there was no craving and clinging and hence no dukkha. I guess in, in that case, the, the complete anti-meditative uh, approach would be like, have non-duality when you need duality and then have duality when you need non-duality. 
uh, I could imagine like an anti-meditation school that <laughs> teaches you how to have the precise wrong perspective at each point in time. Like you go meditate uh, and then very, very dual, dual state. And uh, I don't know, you approach uh, somebody who's about to rob you and you have the most non-dual perspective or I don't know, something like that. <laughs> it can be very helpful to have a very strong dualistic perspective if somebody's about to rob you. I say this from experience. My friend and I were walking back through, mm, let's just say it was a, a shady neighborhood. There were lots of trees and no houses for this block. About, yeah, well, let's just say late at night. I imagine it was midnight or after. And a car passes us. And I hear running feet. And my buddy and I look and a, a kid, a teenager, runs up to us. He says, give me your money. He's got a revolver. I can describe the revolver very clearly. I, I was looking more at the revolver than at him, right? I quickly whipped out my wallet and handed him my money and stuffed the wallet back in my pocket. He said, give me your money. I, I fulfilled his wish. He didn't say, give me your wallet, right? And my friend was confused. He hadn't followed what was going on. He said, what? And I said, he wants your money. And so my friend pulls out his wallet and the guy says, give me that. And my friend says, no, and hands him the money. And he grabs the money and runs off. I knew from the moment I turned around, I was the person in charge. The kid was scared. His buddies in the car had said, go get the money from those guys or leave their wallets or whatever they told him. And I saw his fear and I knew I was in charge. So I'm operating in a very dualistic environment. And I, he said, give me the money. And I gave him the money. I had been trying all day long to change a $50 traveler's check and nobody would do it. So he got $12 from me and $7 from my friend to be held up at gunpoint and get away for that price. It's actually <laughs> worth it. So wow. but it was a complete dualistic experience all the way. And he goes running back to the car and we watch him get in the car and the car go peeling out and go away. We walk back to my friend's house, which was a few blocks away. So yeah. Uh, had I operated from a non-dual perspective, I might have gotten shot. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is very interesting because you will find quite a few contemplatives who seem to be advocating in, in all sincerity that really you should just remain in the deepest of non-dual states at all times in all situations. Um, and, you know, if... Uh, if someone takes your money, if you get shot, if you get robbed, it's all good. This is the absolute. What's the problem? This is, you know, Maya illusion. What, you know, that's that's just your delusion. So it's uh, it's interesting to hear the the non duality of duality and uh, and non duality. Yeah. So three right intentions. The renunciation. Yeah, the non dual is going to be helpful for that. The love and compassion. You're going to have to drop back into the dual to do that. If you're spending all of your time in the non-dual, you're not going to be very good at the love and compassion aspect. Wow. So yeah. you're going to have to be able to move skillfully amongst the two. Yeah. Um, 
just out of yeah, curiosity, I mean, I, I know we are uh, physicalists here, you know, but uh, what, what do you make of um, reports like people saying that on the, uh, on the fourth jhana, they get like more psychic powers or th things of that sort? Like, do you have any model or sense of what, what they're talking yeah. about? Yeah. So in the gradual training, often what we find is after the fourth jhana, you can do insight or you can do these very psychic powers or you can become fully awakened. The last one's a little harder. Um, and so there are a number of psychic powers that are listed. The first one is the mind made body. From this body, one creates another body complete in all its faculties. Well, it sounds like an out-of-body experience, maybe, or, or whatever. Okay, there's some similes. Uh, you pull a sword out of its scabbard. This is a sword. This is a scabbard. That doesn't tell you what's going on. All right, so man-made bodies first. Second one, the, the various supernormal powers. Uh, walking on water as though it is earth. Diving into the earth as though it's water, being many, being one, becoming many, being many, becoming one, appearing and disappearing, passing through walls and ramparts unimpeded, flying cross-legged through the sky, stroking the sun and moon, wielding mastery over the universe as far as the Brahma realms. Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty magical, right? I was talking to one of my students who actually is, is a good friend and he was into lucid dreaming. And he happened to mention that there was a thing called wake induced lucid dreaming, W-I-L-D, wild. Oh, immediately I look it up in Google, right? And the state of mind you wanna to have to go from a waking state directly into a lucid dream sounds a lot like the fourth jhana. Okay, so is creating a mind-made body the 2,500-year-old wild technique? We can lose lucid dreaming. So yes, coming out of the fourth jhana, it would be possible to go into a wake-induced lucid dream. And what are you going to do in a lucid dream? Well, fly through the air or walk on water or any of this. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, you're just making that up. But there's a sutta in the numerical discourses, Anguttara 3.60. And a Brahmin and the Buddha are having a discussion about miracles. And the Brahmin says, well, these first two miracles, the various things like that, and knowing the minds of others, uh, walking on water, these only benefit the one who does them. And the Buddha agrees. So that sounds like it's a private experience just like you would have in a lucid dream. Of course, there's the third miracle, and that's, that's the best miracle of all. That's the miracle of instruction. And yeah, you think about it. If I want to teach somebody something, I exhale, flap some skin in my throat, make sounds, they go eventually wind up in that person's ear and they learn something. That's a miracle. I mean, that's just bizarre. It really is a miracle and it's useful and it benefits more than just the one who does it. Then there's two more going back to the psyche powers is knowing the minds of others and hearing sounds at a distance. So the, this is clear audience and um, ESP, right? Sure. We do know that coming out of the fourth jhana, people do report finding that their ESP powers are enhanced. 
Now, what is ESP? Well, modern science says, well, we can't find it. We, we do the test and yeah, it's, we don't know. It's not there. Basically, absence of evidence is evidence of absence, which we all know is wrong. You can't do that. Whatever ESP is, whether it's scientifically valid or not, or it's just people doing math wrong and random things they think are happening, you know, with some probability that doesn't match the actual probability, or they're just making it up. Whatever ESP is, whether it's scientific or something else, that is enhanced coming out of the jhanas. I have had experiences of that multiple times. Okay, so yeah, you get your mind concentrated enough and whatever ESP is happens more frequently. And then the last two, remember, uh, remembering past lives and seeing beings passing away and re-arising according to their karma. The Buddha lived in a culture that was completely filled with basically reincarnation. So rather than saying, look, guys, this reincarnation, it don't work because you ain't got a self to be reincarnated. People aren't going to pay attention to that. He took the teaching that was there and he used it to express a much bigger picture. He basically is saying, think about all your past lives. Think about all the things that have come to make you who you are now. It goes back into, well, beyond even your birth, all the way back to the Big Bang, we would say today. But it, it, who you are now is dependent on what you've had during this lifetime, but all that happened prior to your lifetime, your parents having sex, uh, the language that you speak being invented, uh, learning to grow food, all of this. And in the future, whatever actions you do now, they're going to play out into the future, even beyond your death. So to use the, the basic cultural thing of reincarnation to give a much broader picture, a bigger picture of how we're so intertwined with both the past and the future, I think was a brilliant move on his part. And if you basically don't make the mistake of thinking the Buddha is doing metaphysics, you don't have any problem with him doing that. He's just trying to get people to practice. He's just trying to get them to see a different picture. So there's my answer to your question. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Very much appreciated. <laughs> that, that idea that uh, they were doing wild. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> I have to look yeah. into that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As soon as my friend told me, it was like, oh, this makes sense. And so I you know, asked Mr. Google and it was like, yeah, yeah, obviously coming out of the fourth jhana, you can go into, yeah. A lucid dream. Listen. This is, you know, just, just one uh, voice in the chorus here, but on the retreat I took with you in January, boy, I had some, I had some great lucid dreams uh, during that retreat. I, <laughs> I don't know if we talked about it, but oh my goodness. Yeah. That, that uh, it's very, very conducive. So yeah. definitely. Going on a retreat definitely enhances the uh, wildness of your dreams, that whether they're lucid or not. Um, you know, I started going on retreat and I started having really vivid and crazy dreams. And when I'm teaching, same thing. 
right? Traveling in India and sleeping in a compartment with 10 other people. Yeah, I had wild dreams. <laughs> so there's lots of ways to, to get it. But definitely a meditation retreat often uh, produces pretty crazy dreams and uh, more likely to be lucid than, than normal as well. I've, I've had so many students come in and report dreams. And what's interesting, sometimes they'll be reporting a dream and then they'll switch to real life, only I didn't catch that they switched to real life. Or they'll report the dream, switch to real life, and then switch back to the dream. You know, and I'm trying to figure out what they're talking about. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yes. I'm also uh, conscious, speaking of, of, of being lucid, uh, that we are coming up on the hour and a half we had blocked out for this. Uh, I'm happy to keep going. I don't know where uh, where you're you two, the commitments that you both have. So if we need to start wrapping up, we can do that. Uh, and if you want to keep going, I'm also happy with that. I'm aware I have a, people uh, listening to this are going to get in, uh, overwhelmed minutes, if we go for two hours. Andrews, yeah, I didn't hear what you said. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I, uh, I have a call for you soon. So also, yeah, we would be happy to wrap up. But uh, yeah, this this has been so so lovely, and uh, <laughs> we're gonna do some homework, and uh, maybe we can chat another time. <laughs> yeah, we covered a lot of really interesting stuff this time. I mean, to come across the understanding of why it's uh, strange attractors, what the actual neurochemical thing going on in there, yeah, that that was so fascinating. I really, really enjoyed that. Definitely, thank you. Oh, fantastic. I mean, I'll, I'll keep keep digging into, into that and uh, see if we, we can make more precise models about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, thank no, you. This, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you both so much for coming on again and, and sharing this conversation with, with me and everybody else who may listen to this. And if people want to find out more about your respective work, where can they go? Either one of you, take it away. Uh, so you can go to my website. Uh, L-E-I-G-H-B dot com, my first name, my last initial dot com. Uh, there's the book on the jhanas, you have to pay for that one, and a book on dependent origination, which is a free download, and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Fantastic. Uh, you can find me at uh, qualiacomputing.com and uh, the website of uh, Qualia Research Institute, which is QRI org and we just <laughs> added a lot of like really crazy fun visuals so definitely check it out if you've checked it out before i recommend like taking a look now because it's much more colorful than before <laughs> okay thank you everyone for listening thank you again lee and andres uh, be well everyone thanks so much bye be well ciao <laughs> thank you so much